Chapter 7, Part 1 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Anna Roberts. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 7, Part 1 The Organization of the Church. From the first, the Church of God had a deep consciousness of its unity. Its members were bound together by a common feeling for religion, a common system, a common hope. Wherever there were Christians, a brother found himself at home. Whoever came to a church and brought the true teaching was to be received and entertained. Especially were they to be honored who spoke the word of God. The apostles, prophets, and teachers, who passed from church to church without being of necessity officials of any, had no doubt a large share in keeping alive the sense of unity in the scattered communities. These were men raised up by the Holy Spirit for the work which they undertook. There is no record of their being elected or ordained. The church recognized the gift which was in them. Careful arrangements were made for their reception in the churches which they visited, and directions given to guard against impostors, for in very early times tares were found among the wheat. But besides teachers specially raised up, a regular organization for teaching and government was found in each church. The distinction of clergy, clericoi, and laity, laicoi, is found at an early age of the church. Clement of Rome hints not obscurely a parallel between the order of the priesthood in the Jewish church and that of the Christian ministry. The Ignatian letters are full of references to a distinct order of ministry with several ranks. Polycarp has much to say on its claims and duties. Irenaeus speaks rather of the distinction conferred by moral and spiritual excellence, the Alexandrian Clement rather of the privileges of the true Christian Gnostic than of a formal order of ministers, though clearly recognizing a distinction between the presbyter, the deacon, and the layman. It is in Tertullian that we first find the words sacerdos and sacerdotium applied directly to the Christian ministers and ministry, yet he asserts distinctly enough the priesthood of the community in Christ, though the authority of the church made a distinction between clergy and laity, ordo and plebs, as was plainly indicated in the separate bench assigned to the former. A few years later Hippolytus speaks of himself as sharing in the grace of high priesthood, archierateas. But in no early writer do we find the sacerdotal claims and functions of the ministry put forward so distinctly as they are by Cyprian, he frankly applies to the officers of the Christian Church passages relating, in the first instance, to the privileges and duties of the Aaronic priesthood. Those who oppose the priesthood are guilty of the sin of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. The language of the apostolic constitutions, probably contemporary with Cyprian, is not less strong. With regard to the particular offices of the ministry, we have already seen that instances of one person exercising in a church an authority such as we call Episcopal are not wanting in the Apostolic Age. The leading indications of the several orders of the ministry in early writers are as follows. The Apostles, says Clement of Rome, appointed their first fruits as bishops and deacons of those who should join the faith. Here, as in St. Paul's epistles, all officers of the church deriving authority from the apostles seem to be included under the two categories of direction or supervision and executive or ministerial activity. Moreover, they directed that after they had fallen asleep, other approved men should succeed to their office, leiturgion. Therefore, continues Clement, those who had either been appointed by the apostles themselves, or by men of consideration with the consent of the church, were not lightly to be deposed from their office 
expressions which seem to imply that after the time of the apostles the chief officers of a church were appointed by a council of its most distinguished members with the assent of the general body of the faithful the shepherd of hermas describes as the squared stones of the great building apostles and bishops and teachers and deacons where the teachers are probably presbyters regarded in their teaching capacity so that the division of offices here appears to be equivalent to that into bishops presbyters and deacons before the middle of the second century we find a distinct recognition of the three orders of the christian ministry bishops presbyters and deacons and opposite parties agree in inculcating the most profound respect for the bishops who are the centres of unity nothing was to be done without the bishop and the presbyters the faithful were to obey the bishop even as christ in obeying the bishop they obeyed god such is the language of the opponents of judaism nor is that of the judaizers themselves less emphatic the bishop sits in the seat of christ he is the lookout at the bows of the ship of the church is entrusted with the place of christ whoso honors him honors christ he presides over and guards the truth delivered to the church irenaeus and tertullian at the end of the second century assume everywhere the universal prevalence of episcopacy from the time of the apostles themselves they know nothing of any other form of government and not only do we find opposing parties agreeing in paying the highest respect to the episcopal office but the succession of bishops in many cities is traceable to a very high antiquity the statement of jerome that episcopacy was developed out of presbyterianism in consequence of the increase of faction and schism which rendered necessary the predominance of one head in each church is probably not well founded and is contradicted by other authorities but there can be no doubt that the dissensions of the early ages, especially the struggles of Judaism and Gnosticism against Catholic Christianity, turned men's thoughts to the advantage arising from the recognition of one head in each church. The due succession of bishops was the chief security for the maintenance throughout the world of the teaching transmitted from the apostles themselves. In the universal prevalence of episcopacy was the varied unity of the church most clearly seen. Yet even when a distinct episcopal order is fully recognized, Bishops are still called presbyters by Greek and sacerdotes by Latin writers. The offices of bishop and presbyter were not separated by so broad a line as those of presbyter and deacon. Every bishop is a presbyter, but every presbyter is not a bishop. The practice of the church, rather than any fundamental distinction, made the episcopate greater than the presbytery. In truth, in the earliest times, the bishop is never divorced from the presbytery, which forms a spiritual coronal around him. It is the especial duty of the presbyters to support and encourage their bishop. They are to him as strings to the lyre. The faithful are to submit themselves not only to the bishop but to the presbyters, as apostles of Christ and the counsel of God. In each church there is one bishop, as there is one sanctuary, and with each bishop is joined the presbytery and the deacons. Every city in which a church was formed had its bishop, whose position in many respects resembled that of the rector of a parish surrounded by his assistant clergy rather than that of the modern bishop of a diocese containing perhaps several large towns to him it belonged to preside over the assemblies whether of the presbyters or of the brethren at large to decide finally on the reception or exclusion of members to grant commendatory letters to members of his flock passing into other dioceses to maintain correspondence with other churches to ordain to preach, to administer the sacraments, the two latter offices he might, and often did, delegate in case of necessity to his presbyters. As the number of the faithful increased, it became more and more necessary to prevent the ministers of the church from being entangled in worldly affairs. 
a bishop was forbidden even to undertake the guardianship of children, as tending to withdraw him from his proper avocations. This withdrawal of the highest order from secular affairs tended to give greater prominence and influence to the order which had from the first the principal charge of charitable organization of the church, that of deacons, ministry, or, as they soon came to be called, Levites. These formed a link between the higher clergy and the laity. Besides preaching and baptizing by the bishop's authority, they kept order in the churches, they received the offerings of the faithful, prepared the holy table, read the gospel, administered the sacrament, both to the faithful who were present at the Lord's Supper, and to those who were absent by reason of sickness. In numberless ways they were the active agents of the bishop. One of their number, who was more especially attached to his service, received the name of archdeacon, and became one of the most important officers of the church. In some churches, the original number of deacons, seven, was not exceeded for several generations. That the deacons, possessing so much actual power, did not always confine themselves within the proper limits of their office, is evident from a decree of the early part of the fourth century. But the needs of the church occasioned a still further extension of the ranks of the ministry. In the third century we find already, besides the superior orders, subdeacons, acolytes, exorcists, readers, and doorkeepers. Those who were destined for the higher office passed in most instances through a period of probation in these lower stations. There is possibly a trace of the office of reader even in Scripture itself, and the homily which is known as the Second Epistle of Clement, and which is not later than the middle of the second century, certainly seems to have been written with a view to being publicly delivered by a reader. In the most ancient directions for the ordination of church ministers, the reader is mentioned before the deacon, and is required, among other qualifications, to possess the gift of fluency, knowing that he discharges the office of an evangelist. All this indicates that in the early days of the church the reader was a person possessing a special gift, regarded as akin to that of prophecy, though in the third century his office had become mechanical, and he was ranked, as we have seen, last but one of the minor officials. Even then, however, when his office was limited to the reading aloud of the selected portions of Scripture in the congregation, he retained traces of his former quasi-prophetic office. The stipend which is assigned to him is said to be for the honor of the prophets, and in his ordination the Lord is implored to bestow upon him the prophetic spirit. It is noteworthy that all the ancient Western ordinals refer the election of the reader to the brethren, meaning probably the clergy. He was anciently ordained with laying on of hands, later by the delivery of the book from which he was to read. The office of exorcist was also one which required a special gift, that of casting out evil spirits, which could not be conferred by the laying on of hands. Hence the exorcist does not receive ordination in that form. The grace that is in him is manifest to all. The ancient Western ordinals direct the bishop to constitute an exorcist by delivering to him a book of exorcisms, the office then implying duties little more than mechanical. Two causes contributed to render necessary an order of subdeacons. As the congregations became larger and the services more elaborate, the deacons were found to be no longer capable of discharging all the offices which fell to them, in the congregation and out of it, while at the same time a religious scruple prevented the authorities in many cases, even in large towns, from appointing a larger number of deacons than the mystic seven sanctioned by the practice of the apostles in Jerusalem. Hence a subordinate order was instituted to discharge such portions of the deacon's office as might be delegated to them. These officers were probably first appointed in a Greek-speaking church, such as that of Rome, for even Cyprian speaks of them as hypodiaconi. 
It is noteworthy that Fabian, who was bishop of Rome in the middle of the third century, is said to have appointed seven subdeacons in addition to the already existing seven deacons, as if to bring up the number of the two together to that of the regions of the city, to which greater importance had recently been given by the appointment of a kind of sub-prefect in each by Alexander Severus. We have not sufficient information to enable us to give any exact definition of the duties of the subdeacon in the first three centuries. Cyprian employed them as his messengers to the churches under his charge. The Acolouthos, sometimes spoken of under the equivalent Latin name Sequens, was the follower or personal attendant of some higher official, probably a presbyter. Their appointment seems to indicate a certain increase of state and dignity in the higher officials, but they are not mentioned in this early period in such a way as to indicate with any exactness the duties of their office. The number of acoliths at Rome, mentioned in the letter of Cornelius, was forty-two, just thrice the number of the regions in the city. As the deacons came to be more and more occupied with higher duties, the lower were delegated to officials of a different class. Among these were the doorkeepers, ostiari, or thuroroi, who discharged the duty of watching the doors, to prevent the intrusion of improper persons. They are first mentioned in the letter of Cornelius of Rome, already referred to. These were the male officers of the church, but it was thought well to give to women also a share in the sacred ministry. The widows about whom directions are given in the pastoral epistles seem to be rather those whose maintenance was undertaken by the church than a band of workers. No mention, at least, is made there of any special work entrusted to them, though the fact that those placed on the roll were required to be already distinguished for good works seems to indicate that they were not mere dependents on the bounty of the church. The word widow, however, soon came to be applied to single women who devoted themselves to church work, so that Ignatius salutes the virgins who are called widows, and Tertullian mentions and denounces the case of a virgin who had been entered on the roll of widows before she was twenty. The widows were to be engaged, some in intercession and in waiting for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, some in nursing the sick and reporting to the presbyter such cases as required their help. The seclusion of women in the East rendered them in many cases inaccessible to the ministrations of men, and the office of deaconess was created to reach them. Thus we find Phoebe called by the same title as a male deacon, and directions given about the qualifications of women deacons. Deaconesses, like widows, might be either virgins or widows who had once been married. The widows were placed under the orders of the deaconesses, who are again made subject to the deacons. The duties of the deaconess, besides that of paying pastoral visits to women under the direction of the bishop, were to keep the door of the women's entrance to the church, and to perform such portions of the baptismal rite as could not without indelicacy be undertaken by men. She was to be appointed by the bishop only, not by any inferior officer. The members of Christian communities in the neighborhood of a city attended its services, and acknowledged the authority of its bishop. Those which were more remote were cared for by their own presbyters and deacons, or sometimes even a deacon, without bishop or presbyter, had charge of a congregation, though not, of course, so as to exercise specially episcopal functions. In the latter part of the third century, mention is made of bishops of country districts, agron, as well as of towns, and a little later we find such bishops recognized under the title of corepiscopoi, or district bishops. These, however, had no power of ordaining without a commission from the city bishop to whom they were subject. We see here a difference of rank within the limits of the episcopal order itself. As to the election of bishops and other officers of the church, 
Clement of Rome describes the bishops and deacons, after the death of the apostles, as being appointed by men of consideration, with the assent of the whole church. By these Andres elogomoi may possibly be understood men like Titus and Timothy, commissioned by the apostles themselves to appoint elders, but it seems more probable that the term is intended to designate those who from the length of time that they had been disciples, their rank, or their personal qualities, exercised a dominant influence in the community, the seniors of a later time. At all events, the assent of the whole church is appealed to as a proof of the validity of the appointment of the rulers who succeeded the apostles. And we find the popular election of bishops still maintained in the third century. Cyprian represents the vote of the whole brotherhood in a city as necessary for the valid appointment of its bishop, the lay people as having a dominant influence in choosing good pastors and rejecting bad. Even if there were in a city but three Christians competent to vote, they were still to have a bishop, but their choice was to be assisted and ratified by their brethren from a neighboring city. But after that the relations of churches and bishops to each other had been developed and organized, another element appears in the choice of prelates, the assent of the neighboring comprovincial bishops. But this does not seem to have been universally required. In Alexandria, at least, up to the middle of the third century, the presbyters always nominated as bishop one chosen out of their own body, just as an army might elect a general. A later authority says that it was not until the time of Alexander, A.D. 313-336, through 336, that the presbyters ceased to ordain the patriarch. The choice of the person, however, to whom the episcopal office was to be committed, was a matter entirely distinct from the conferring of the distinctive authority of the office. The person once chosen received the imposition of hands from his fellow bishops, and was regarded not simply as the elected head of the community, but as invested with an authority derived from the Lord himself. The voice of the people was the voice of God, the bishops were successors of the apostles, the gifts conferred by ordination were divine. Three bishops, or two at least, were to lay their hands on the head of the person to be consecrated. Nor was it the bishop only who was chosen by the voice of the community over which he was to preside. Ministers of other orders, not only presbyters and deacons, but even readers, were not appointed in ordinary cases without the people being summoned to deliberate on their merits though in cases where a special fitness was manifest, the bishop might exercise his individual judgment and authority. In ordination to inferior offices, not more than one bishop was required to lay hands on the head of the candidate. In some cases unction was added to the laying on of hands. The bishop was, for the most part, chosen from the members of the church over which he was to preside, and generally from among those who had already borne some office in the ministry. He who had borne well in the inferior office earned for himself a higher place that in times of peril the communities endeavored to choose men fitted by age, character, and holiness to guide them aright, will readily be understood. The training of the spirit, the education of practical work, superseded in early days special schools for the clergy. Yet the catechetic school of Alexandria rose into fame in the third century, and came to be regarded as an advantageous place of training for those who were to undertake the sacred ministry, and schools frequented by Christians were formed at Caesarea, Antioch, and Rome. The older Christian writers, as Clement of Alexandria and the Apologists, owed their learning and cultivation to heathen and not to Christian schools. While Christian teachers were insisting on the parallel between the Christian ministry and the Jewish priesthood, in one respect at least they entirely deserted this analogy. Marriage had been held in honor among the Jews, and Jewish priests had been always married. But even in early days a notion that marriage implied imperfect sanctity crept into the Christian church, and as imperfect sanctity was certainly not befitting those who served the altar, 
the celibacy of priests came first to be recommended and then to be enjoined. Second marriages of the clergy were from the first discommended, and even held to exclude from ecclesiastical offices. But no evidence is found of the actual prohibition of marriage to the higher orders of the ministry until the very end of the third century or the beginning of the fourth. At that period a diversity of practice clearly existed in the church. We find excommunication denounced against any bishop, presbyter, or deacon who should put away his wife under pretense of living a more ascetic life, while of those who were unmarried when ordained only readers and choristers were permitted to marry. Again, it is laid down that bishops, presbyters, deacons, and other clerks engaged in the work of the ministry should not dwell with their wives. A special provision was made by the Council of Ansira for the case of deacons. If a deacon on ordination declared that he could not engage to lead a life of continence, he was permitted to marry, but if he was ordained without any such declaration, he was to be degraded from his office if he afterwards married. It is evident, however, that there was at this time no absolute and universal prohibition of marriage to the clergy, for several distinguished clerics of the fourth and later centuries are known to have been married, nor does that state seem in their case to have been regarded as in any way involving disgrace or inferiority. We find in the earliest age of the church no distinct ordinance as to the maintenance of its ministers. No doubt many, like St. Paul, lived by the labor of their hands. Yet the great principle, that the laborer is worthy of his hire, and that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel, was always admitted. They who waited at the altar became partakers of the offerings of the faithful at the altar, and these freewill offerings soon came to be regarded as the equivalents for the tithes of the Mosaic law. As the clergy were more and more withdrawn from all participation in secular affairs, it became more and more necessary to provide them an independent subsistence. It is evident, from the very nature of the Church of Christ, that the Church of any one city could not remain in loveless isolation from other churches. The community of life, discipline, and doctrine, which are inherent in the very conception of the Church, forbade it. As individuals formed a particular Church, so all the churches, taken together, formed the Catholic Church. And as the bishop, with his presbyters, formed the council of a particular community, so an assembly of bishops formed the council of a district or province. Synods were a natural product of the life of the Church. They were the principal manifestations of its unity both in doctrine and discipline. It was their work to concert common action for the resisting of heresy, the healing of schism, the restoration of discipline. The bishop seems in all cases to have represented his church at these assemblies. As each bishop was the center of unity in his own church, so the assembled bishops represented the unity of a larger portion of the church universal. Of general councils we, of course, hear nothing, until the cessation of persecution permitted the assembling of prelates from every quarter of the Roman world. But though bishops were the ordinary and indispensable members of a synod, yet presbyters also took part in their deliberations. In Cappadocia, seniors and presidents assembled every year to arrange matters of common concern. At the Synod of Antioch it was the presbyter Malchion who refuted Paul of Samosata, and in the synodal letters the presbyters Malchion and Lucius are named expressly, while several of the bishops are not. The regular constitution of a council at the beginning of the fourth century was probably that described in the preamble to the canons of Elvira. When the bishops had taken their seats, twenty-six presbyters also sitting with them, and the deacons in the whole commonality, plebs, standing by, the bishops said, the canons run in the name of the bishops, though the presbyters no doubt took part in the deliberations, and the deacons and people had perhaps the same kind of tumultuary influence as the commons at an English Wittengemot.
End of chapter 7, part 1.